Amen. I want to just take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20. God has blessed us with so much talent and so much uh, that we have to be grateful for and thankful for. And I'm grateful for people who use their gifts and abilities to serve and honor the Lord with their lives and with those gifts and abilities. If you were not here this uh, past week, I want to encourage you to get the tapes of Warren Wiersbe. Uh, as you well know, uh, Dr. Wiersbe only does two meetings a year. Now he's basically retired from my itinerant ministry, and he speaks here, and then he speaks in uh, Massachusetts in a conference there that he's done for a number of years. But uh, especially Wednesday night was a phenomenal message that ties in so much to the Passion of the Christ, the movie, and talking about the five characteristics of the kind of death that Jesus died. And it's a great message. I'd encourage you to get the tape of it and listen to it because it's a powerful reminder that goes in with that message. In fact, it's a good tape to give to somebody who has seen the movie and wants to know a little bit more. That tape of Wednesday night study with Warren Wiersbe would be a great study for you. Acts chapter 20, we're going to talk about this morning, the danger of heresy. We're going to go back tonight to Acts chapter 19, the second part of that message on the signs and wonders of today. If, is that a true movement? Uh, this morning, we're going to look at heresy out of Acts chapter 20, and I want to begin reading with verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is leaving Ephesus, and he's going to Jerusalem. He's in a hurry, but he's not so much in a hurry that he doesn't have a message that he wants to get out. In fact, he wants to speak specifically to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Paul knows in his heart that he will never return there. And so he has an important message, and he calls them to him, and he begins to deliver this message with this urgent message on his heart. And he warns them of two things. First of all, he warns them of false leaders that are going to come from the outside to try to destroy the church. Secondly, he warns them that some of them, if they're not careful, will become false leaders and false teachers within the church so that from outside and from within, there would be problems, there would be issues. And so Paul is trying to address this. By the way, this is the only message in the book of Acts that is addressed exclusively to Christians. Everything else is either an evangelistic sermon, a legal defense of Paul before Jewish and Roman authorities, or some speech before a group that is mixed between lost and saved, Jews and Gentiles. This is the only message in all of Acts that is exclusively Christian, and it is important for us to hear it and to heed it because what these leaders would do with what Paul says would determine the future of the church. 
It is important that we listen to what God has to say to us, how he wants to speak to us, because what God says in his word determines how we act in the future. As the church goes, it goes primarily according to how the leaders respond to the word of God. And so this is a word for pastors, it's a word for staff, it's a word for uh, Sunday school teachers and deacons, but it's also a word for the church because as you look for what a church should be and what a pastor should be, what deacons should be, what Sunday school teachers should be, this is an important passage for judging the viability and the biblical nature of a church, if it is one. Some churches have signs, but they're not always churches. Sometimes they're social gatherings, sometimes they're country clubs, sometimes they're uh, politically correct groups that get together. But if we want to know what a church is supposed to be, Acts chapter 20 is a good text for us to look at. I believe that the problems in the church today are basically twofold. I don't believe most of our problems are demonic and satanic. I think for most churches, the devil's not worried about them because they're not threatening him. I think there's two reasons why the church is in trouble in America today and why many people say America is a burnt-over harvest field and why America is one of the most unchurched nations in the world. Number one, weak leadership from the pulpit. Weak leadership from the pulpit. We don't hear enough of thus says the Lord. This is what God says. You can go to some churches and hear what Reader Digest, Reader's Digest says, but you can buy that in the shopping mall. Thus says the Lord. Weak leadership in a pulpit. Secondly, I think there's a problem because of a lack of discernment in the pew. A lack of discernment in the pew. I had somebody come up to me the other day and, and say, oh, somebody, somebody said they really love you and they love, they love to hear you preach and they love this person. And I, when they said the name of that other person, we were as far apart theologically as two people can be. I mean, if he's going north, I'm headed south. If he's going east, I'm going west. I mean, we are way apart. And I thought, how can you listen to the two of us and think that we even are on the same page? There's no way. And one of the reasons why people fall into cults, by the way, the Mormons have more conversions among Baptists than any denomination in the world. And you know when they visit? They visit houses on Sunday mornings because if your church doesn't mean enough to you to get up and go, you must be a prospect. And Baptists are being converted to Mormonism, and the reason they are is because Baptists don't know their Bible well enough to know the truth and to have discernment. And the reason they listen to some things on television, it just goes right over their head. And they never say, does that bear witness with the Word of God? There's a lack of discernment. So, to avoid heresy, number one, someone has to lead. Someone has to lead. Paul is not bragging here. Some people look at this and say, oh, Paul's just reading his resume. He's just bragging about all he's done. No, he's defending himself. Paul is under attack. Paul is just stating for the record what he's done. And if you read these verses, look at verse 19. You'll see the form of the attack. He was being attacked. He says, I'm serving the Lord. And how is he serving? With all humility and with tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. What were they attacking him of? Being proud. He said, I'm serving with humility. You say I'm proud and, and I'm insincere and I'm superficial. But I came to you with tears. And through trials, these troubles have come because of these Jewish leaders, not because of me. And Paul is a servant to these people. By the way, 
Being a servant is not being a wimp. Some people think that when you're a servant, you're a wimp and you're just a a rag for people to throw around and you're just somebody that people can step on. The greatest leader that has ever lived, the most powerful, authoritative person that's ever lived on the face of the earth was the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he was a servant. But he spoke with authority. Being a servant is not being a wimp. Look at what Paul does. He's ministered to them for three years. He's loved them. He's rebuked them. Just write in the margin of your Bible, write 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Look at verse 35 of Acts chapter 20. In everything I showed you. In everything I showed you. Paul says, my life is a lesson. I've been a role model. I've, I've been an example to you. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. Paul is a man who is defending his record because people are attacking his record. He's not doing this to protect himself. He's doing it because he's protecting the gospel that he preaches. There's a difference between protecting yourself and protecting the gospel that you preach. And so he's protecting. He says in verse 19, I was serving the Lord. By the way, there are no celebrities in the kingdom of God. None. Uh, Sometimes we want to have celebrities. We make musicians and and preachers and other people celebrities. There are no celebrities in the family of God. They're only servants. We are to be servants. We're not to be celebrities. And if we expect to be treated like celebrities or we want to act like celebrities, then we're not being like Jesus when we do that. You know, if if we're just, and I've I've seen it. I've been in enough conventions to know this. Some people, they just want everybody to stop and go, there goes so-and-so. There goes so-and-so. Listen, it took just as much of the blood of Jesus to die for them and for their sins as it did for you. They are saved by the grace of God. They may be in a higher profile position than you are, but they're just dust, just like you are. We are to be servants. Now, that means a couple of things to me. First of all, it means you cannot do what you do for yourself. You can't do what you do for yourself so that people are drawn to you, so that people are attracted to you. If you're going to be a leader, if you're going to have a witness, the attraction is to Jesus in you. Secondly, it means you can't do what you do because it makes you feel good about yourself when people tell you how wonderful you are. Because there's somebody who's going to tell you how wonderful you are and there's somebody who's going to tell you how bad you are. The servant of God has to be dead to two things, flattery and flattening. If you're not dead to flattery, you won't be dead to flattening either. If you're not dead to, oh, I tell you what, you're the greatest Sunday school teacher. If the apostle Paul hadn't been born, Jesus would have chosen you. If you're not dead to that, then you're also not dead to, I could never sit through that class another time. You have to be dead to both. We've crucified ourselves. We've died to self. It's not about the praise of men and the applause of men. And there are people who serve God. Unfortunately, they do. They preach Christ, but they serve God because they need attention and approval. 
They need people to like them. They're like, by the way, we have a new dog at our house. Uh, this one's a lab, though. We're praying that it's not demon-possessed like our other dog. So far, it just bites my ankles, but I hear they get bigger. But you know what a puppy wants? A puppy wants approval. A puppy wants praise. You know, you just watch a puppy, and, and you just give them any. They come running to you. And sometimes people take on those personalities. We're like puppy dogs. We want everybody to like us. And if they like us, we'll lick their face, <laughs> get that puppy breath all over them. We'll just go wild if they like us. We have to be dead to flattery and flattening because God has called us to serve. Galatians 1, 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The hardest thing I think for a Christian to do, now listen to me very carefully, whether you're a leader or a follower, the hardest thing for a Christian to do is to get over themselves. Now, I remember in my own life and in my children's life, in that one little stretch in the teenage years where it's all about me. You remember that? And it's all about what I want to eat and what I want to do and where I want to sit in the car and what I want to buy. and what I, it's, it's amazing. Have you ever noticed that a 14-year-old can tell you how to solve the world's problems, but they can't match two socks together? <laughs> they can't clean their room, but they can solve the world's problems. I mean, their side of the house looks like a torpedo went through it. But, you know, if you ask them how to fix something, they, oh, yeah, I, can, I, I know how to handle that. You see, we have to get over ourselves. And part of the Christian life that is the hardest for us is dying to ourselves, going and taking up that cross daily and dying to ourselves. I love what Jim Cimbala says to all of his leaders. It's not a very popular thing. Jim Cimbala says two things to his leaders. He sits down and has a personal interview with every person that's in leadership in his church, from the choir to the ushers to anybody else. And he says this, first of all, nobody cares what you think. Nobody's going to show up at church today and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? We're not here to find out what you think. And secondly, nobody cares how you feel. I've been in places where I went to study the Bible, and the first 20 minutes was giving me an autopsy report of how their week went. Listen, we're here to study the Word of God. We're here to exalt Jesus. And what if I got up every Sunday, and this is the way I began, let me tell you how my week went. Cut my finger. That's why I got a Band-Aid on it. Got a little scratch on my ankle where my dog got a hold of me. I got one right here on my wrist. It was bleeding last night. It hurt. My back's kind of hurting me. I had to take some ibuprofen before I preached today. My hair didn't do right. <laughs> I mean, would you want to come listen to that? I wouldn't either. You see, it's when you're in leadership 
And when God has saved you and transformed you, the purpose of church is not to come tell everybody about how your life is going and how you're feeling and what's going on. The purpose is to come together and to corporately lift our worship before God. The focus is on Jesus. Paul tells us the things that he went through, but he doesn't do it on every page of the Bible. There's okay to say, you know what, I'm not having a good day. You need to pray for me. But we don't need the full doctor's file. Okay? Just tell me you need me to pray. I don't need to know what the, what the, the file looks like, and I don't need to know what the nurse said. And, and all that. It's not that I don't care. It's that there are 1,500 of us here, and do you know how long that would take? We'd be here until Jesus came back. See, somebody has to lead, and Paul has to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's what we're about. I came to you in tears and trials, but he doesn't go beyond. He just says, that's the way I came. That's what I've done. I've ministered to you. I hurt. I know you hurt, but here's who I am. Here's what I've done. And he moves on. He doesn't dwell on it. Why? Because his message is not his tears and his trials. His message is Jesus. Secondly, To avoid heresy, leaders must be committed to the Word of God without apology. Now look at verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you. In verse 27, he says again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul didn't almost say anything. What Paul knew he had to say, he said it. He said, I didn't back up, I didn't shrink, I didn't backpedal. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Now, i got to tell you, there are some parts of the Bible I'd rather not teach. They're uncomfortable. They're hard to teach. Any pastor that likes to preach on money is sick. They're just, they're hard things to teach. But they're profitable. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You, You see, sometimes there are things that I just like to avoid. That's the problem with preaching through a book. You just can't jump and do what you want to do, you got to go where the text is going. And it's profitable for us, even though sometimes it costs friends, it can cost members, it can cost potential members to preach what the Word of God says. But it's all profitable, not just the parts we like. Warren Wiersbe said, and I know the preacher he was talking about, Warren Wiersbe said there was a pastor that every seven years he felt led of God to preach through the book of Revelation. He'd take a year to do it. And he said one of the members came to Warren and said, if he preaches through the Revelation one more time, I'm going to feel led to go somewhere else. You see, you can get stuck in a rut, and some people do. They think the only thing that's profitable is prophecy. And so they just chase all the prophecy sermons and seminars around. Some people get stuck on some doctrine. Some people get stuck on some teaching, and they they just kind of plant themselves there and not get the full counsel of God. Paul expounded the Word. Now, there are three sources, possible sources of truth. Number one, human speculation and reasoning. Human speculation and reasoning. One opinion is as good as another. One idea is as good as another. By the way, the, the, the... 
the window for this kind of thought is The Tonight Show and The Late Show and Conan O'Brien, where all these Hollywood people get on and they speak as if they're authorities on subject. Have you ever noticed that? Since when does somebody who's been married seven times become an authority on marriage and child raising? But they get on television, they got this audience, and they tell a few jokes, and they sit there, well, they won an Academy Award, they must know something. Yeah, they know how to memorize a script, duh huh? They're not authorities on anything. They, they didn't go to school. You know, some, half of them, they don't have anything that qualifies them to speak on a subject. But we live in a culture where human reasoning and the human potential movement and secularism and postmodern thinking means, well, if I believe it, it must be true. Since I believe it, it's true. Or this is what I think. The whole New Age philosophy and the human potential movement of reasoning is a source of truth. And so somebody says, well, I believe that, so it's true. Secondly, and you need to hold on here for a minute, is the infallible institution of the church. The infallible institution of the church. Now, I have some friends and acquaintances who are Catholics, and I think many of them are, are saved, just like I think that there are some saved Baptists and lost Baptists. But here's where one of the sources of truth is that you have to be aware of. To say that the Pope is infallible is to say that he is without error. Now, here's the only question. If he's without error, then why does one Pope change what a previous Pope said? Who made the mistake? Now, folks, listen. There's one perfect man, Jesus Christ. He was without error. He was infallible. Everything he said was true. One perfect man, one perfect Bible, and anything added to the Bible is not infallible. It is man's opinion. Third thing is the Word of God. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Psalm 119, verse 15. All your commandments are truth. The sum of your word is truth, verse 160 of Psalm 119 says, the Word of God. Now, why is the Bible the only source of truth? Why is it that you can hang your hat, place your feet, build your life on the Word of God? Number one, it's inspired and inerrant. It's inspired and inerrant. Now, inerrant has been kind of a flag word, especially in Southern Baptist circles, uh, since the turning around of our denomination from a liberal leaning to a more conservative leaning, but it just means it's without error. What God says is true. 2 Timothy 3.16, it is God-breathed. It is inspired. God-breathed. In other words, there were human authors. That's why you see different styles of writing, and it's written over a course of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, and yet it has one theme. Why? Because the Holy Spirit didn't have robots in those men, but he breathed on them. The Holy Spirit inspired them what to write down for our benefit, for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction and training in righteousness. God breathed on them. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Not only is it inspired and inerrant, secondly, it is accurate. It is accurate. 
Now, if you want to know what the mathematic table is, you don't go to the Bible. The Bible's not a book of math, but when it speaks on mathematical issues and numbers, it's accurate. The Bible's not a science book, but when it speaks to things of science, it's accurate. And our school systems would do well to include the Bible in their curriculum because it's the only book that doesn't have to be revised. And sometimes we say, oh, we've discovered a new... No, you didn't discover a new truth. It's been a truth all along. You just figured it out. You know, man discovered the law of gravity. You know how he did that? He got on a building and thought he could fly. Oh, you see, we're just discovering what God's already set in place. The Bible is accurate. When it speaks, it is accurate. When it says that there were 3,000 saved at Pentecost, it means there were 3,000 saved at Pentecost. The Bible was not written by a Baptist preacher that was trying to win a church growth award by padding his numbers. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit of God who knew how many people were there. Now, the Bible that you hold in your hand, what it says is accurate and It is the only Bible that can change your life. Any other Bible, any other book, and Bible means book. It's a holy Bible, means it's a holy book. Any other Bible or book cannot change your life. Oh, it can inspire you, but it can't change you on the inside. Only the Bible can do that. Thirdly, it declares itself as truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now that word accurately handling is an interesting word. It means to cut along a path or a pattern. It is a word that any seamstress would understand when you cut out a pattern. You cut it out along the lines of the pattern so that when you put it together, it fits like it's supposed to fit. That's the word here. It is also used to describe how the priest would cut the sacrificial animal according to the directives given in the book of Leviticus. And so when he says that we are to accurately handle the word of truth, it means that we're supposed to cut it right down like it's supposed to be cut down the middle. And we're not supposed to edge and go out over here and wind our way around, and end up with something that doesn't look like the Word of God. It's to be cut accurately, taught accurately. Now let me give you a little statement to write down in your Bible or on your notes. Text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. If you take the Bible out of context, you can make it say anything you want it to say. Jerry Vines is a pastor of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And he says, and I think this is a good thing, that there are three circles of context. And he summarizes it very well. Circle number one is the immediate context. The immediate context. The verse itself. The verse before it and the verse after it. You see the immediate context. If you start with a verse that says, therefore, and don't look at what the therefore is therefore, you're going to be in trouble. Or so then, what's he doing? He's applying what he's just taught. And so you look at the immediate context. Where's that verse? John 3.16 has John 3.15 and John 3.17. So you look at John 3.16 in the context in which it is written. Now, let me give you another little statement. You need to write this down. It's a good statement to help you just in interpreting Scripture and understanding Scripture. If the plain sense 
make sense, seek no other sense. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, don't go try to find some hidden meaning if it's obvious what it means. Jesus said to go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. The rich young ruler tried to figure out another sense of that. Jesus meant what he said, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. If it's plain, then leave it as it is. Don't try to get some figurative theory going out there floating in some, you know, if you do that, you're going to end up in Haight-Ashbury with the hippies that are 50 years old now. Just let the Bible say what it says in the immediate context. Now, that also means you never take a figure of speech and try to interpret it literally. The Bible is an inerrant book, but there are times when it uses poetry. There are times when it uses prose. There are times when it is historical, times when it is giving you some background material. And you don't take everything literally. You take it literally when it's supposed to be taken literally, but if it's a figure of speech, take it as that. When Paul says in just a few moments that wolves are going to come in, he wasn't meaning that actual wolves were going to come into the church. He's giving a metaphorical image of what these leaders, false leaders, would be like. Secondly, the book content, context. What book is it in? What book is it in? Is it in Proverbs? Is it, is it in First and Second Kings? Is it history? Is it doctrinal? Now, here's why do we not teach doctrine out of Acts? Because we follow the teachings, listen to me, we follow the teachings of the apostles, but we don't follow the experiences of the apostles. They were apostles. We are not. I am not an apostle, nor shall I ever be one. To be an apostle, you had to be alive at the time that Jesus was raised for the dead or be the apostle Paul who Jesus appears to personally. There are no apostles today. I know we got them all over the place giving themselves that name. They gave themselves a name. God gave the apostles their name. But there are people out there that give themselves a name apostle. They're not apostles. Not unless they're on the level with the apostle Paul, and I haven't met one of those apostles that is. In fact, if you pull out of them in front of traffic, you'll find out that they're not apostles. Just a thought. Number three, the biblical context. Not just what book it's in, but what's the message of the entire Bible on this issue? What does the whole Scripture teach us about this issue? Now, let me give you another statement. You don't let obscure passages build your doctrine. You do not build doctrine on obscure passages, nor do you interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. You interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The Old Testament is an incomplete revelation. The complete revelation is in the New Testament. You never take the New Testament and try to interpret it in light of the Old Testament. And we have a lot of people doing that today that, that have a covenant theology and have a kingdom theology that says everything that applied to Israel applies to us. Okay, then get up and leave where you're going and don't know where you're going and take your family and your mother-in-law and your brother-in-law and your donkeys and your goats and everything else and just start walking and find out where God wants you to go. That's what he did to Abraham. 
If, if you wanted to apply some of it, apply all of it. You see, there were words spoken just for the Jews. There were words spoken to the Gentiles, and there are specific words spoken to the church. And the church is in danger of taking promises given to the Jews in the Old Testament and trying to make them promises for the church. That's where a lot of the health and wealth gospel comes in. Taking passages out of the Old Testament and picking and choosing what you want to pick and choose, well, you got to be careful because that's where a lot of false teaching can come in, trying to make the Old Testament live in light of the New Testament rather than the other way around. Everybody okay? That's what he means, yes. That's what he means. Everybody okay? You see, if, if you're going to claim the promises for Israel, then when are you going to claim your 490 years of captivity? Everybody's claiming the blessings of Israel. Oh, the blessings and the prosperity of Israel. I want to know when you're going to ask God to put you in captivity so you'll cry out to him. It's in the same book. You can't have one without the other. You can't just pick and choose which promises you want to apply to your life. God's word is God's word, and you have to take the whole counsel of God. Now, while all Scripture is written for us, not all Scripture is written to us. Paul says about some things that happened with Israel, these things happened as an example for us. And so there are examples in there for us to learn from the Old Testament and draw from that and learn some things so that we don't repeat the same mistakes they made. Have you ever noticed how many times the people of Israel kept making the same mistakes? They never learned. Paul says, why don't y'all get off of that kick and learn so you don't make those mistakes like they made? The church doesn't have to make those mistakes that the, that the people of Israel made. And while it's written for us, it's not always written to us. And by the way, there's no new revelation Vance Havner said, if it's new, it's not true. If you think you've thought of something that Paul and Peter didn't think of and the church hadn't thought of for 2,000 years, you are sadly mistaken. There is no new revelation. The revelation is complete. By the way, if there's new revelation, and I've heard this, I, 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 I watch the heresy channels sometimes, and, and you know, I say that, oh, I got, a, I got a new revelation from God. Then why, why don't we have loose-leaf Bibles so we can just add chapters to it? I mean, that makes sense. If there are new revelations, then why is it at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, don't you add anything and don't you take away anything from this book. Don't add, don't take away. If there's new revelation, if all of a sudden now we're being enlightened in ways that nobody has ever been enlightened, then let's all get loose-leaf Bibles and we'll just keep adding pages and we, we, we just fax you a page this week of the new revelation. You start living by that. You say, well, that's preposterous. But a lot of people are believing it. There is no new revelation. Jude 3 says, we contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. To contend means to fight or to stand for. The faith is a definite article, not a faith, but the completed faith. Once for all, no additional revelation. And he says it was handed down or entrusted. Now, if you're just writing your notes somewhere, Jude 3, and write down that word entrusted, here's what it means. It means to, deliver, to be delivered and to stand completely delivered. 
In other words, when God delivered the word to the saints, he told us everything we needed to know. It is delivered and completely delivered. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Number three, to avoid heresy, you need to know how to spot a heretic. Verse 28. Paul, and listen to what Paul says. Paul says, hey, you know what? Your blood's not going to be on my hands. I, I'm not responsible. I've already told you the truth, and I, I'm not responsible anymore. You're responsible for what you do with it. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Now, there are three charges, three commands that Paul gives them. The first one is that we are to keep watch. That means leaders need to begin by looking in the mirror. Keep watch. Why? Because you keep watch over yourself and over the flock. So when he says keep watch, he's talking to the leaders. He said, you better keep watch over yourself. You better watch how you walk. You better watch what you do. You better watch where you go. You keep watch. Why? Because if you don't keep watch over yourself, you can't watch anybody else. If you don't discipline your own life, you can't get anybody else's life disciplined. So he says we are to guard our hearts and our minds. Secondly, he says we are to be shepherds. We have a holy calling. Shepherd the church of God. Not my church. Not your church. It's his church. We shepherd the church of God. It's not your Sunday school class, it's his Sunday school class. Not your pew, it's his pew. Not your building, it's his building. It all belongs to the Lord. Everything about this has to belong to God or otherwise we'll take credit for it ourselves. And we'll begin to long for the applause of men. And if something affects what we're doing, we'll water it down so that we can keep a crowd. We'll live for the whims of men. And so he says that we are to keep watch, we are to be shepherds, and thirdly, we're to be on guard. And look what he says we're to be on guard for. And they're just as obvious as a wolf is to a flock of sheep. First of all, savage wolves. Savage wolves. These are wolves waiting the pounce. They come in from the outside in sheep's clothing. And, and they deny the true power of faith. They work their way in and they destroy the foundations of the church. Not only savage wolves, but sneaky wolves. These are inside he says, there, come, there will come some from among your own selves, from among these elders, these leaders that he's talking to. He says, somebody's going to rise up that's going to have a distorted doctrine. They're going to have a half-truth. They're going to come up with some new idea. They're going to have read some book, and they're going to come along, and they're going to try to add to or take away from the gospel. They'll begin to say, well... It doesn't really mean that. Or they'll begin to have some new thought or new idea, and they'll get a little group around them. And that little group will be more spiritual than everybody else, and before you know, that little group will be a little bit bigger, and then that little group will decide to go off and start a little church to teach their little doctrines and their little hang-ups and their little ideas. And by the way, you always judge them by them talking about how many people they've gotten out of another church. 
That's how you know them. That's how you can put your nose in the wind and, and tell whether sin is. Because a false teacher will always talk about how many people they've gotten from other churches to come join their teachings. Oh, we got a family from this church, and we got somebody from that. You watch it. They'll always talk about how many they've got because to them, numbers means I'm right. It means I'm right. By the way, you can get a crowd. All you got to do is give away donuts. You can get a crowd. I mean, and if the hot sign's on at Krispy Kreme, you can get twice the crowd. And if you got good coffee, triple the numbers. It's high attendance day. Matthew 7, 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Mike Benkert said, because the enemy is disguised as one of the flock, there usually isn't even an agreement on the existence of a threat, much less the seriousness of it. Jesus said that there are going to be people who prophesy in his name and who cast out demons and perform miracles, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You are practicing lawlessness. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust. Look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. I have in my margin of my Bible by verse 17, have disciplined discernment. Have disciplined discernment. Just because somebody says it doesn't mean it's true. Check it out with the Word of God. And then turn over to Jude, the book of Jude. And verse 4, I read verse 3 earlier. Verse 4 says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, just before the book of Revelation, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be many mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, that's the second time he said that, verse 17 and verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So what's he doing in verse 20? He says, the way you watch out for this is you get in the Word and you pray. You get in the Word and you pray. By the way, now, by Jude verse 20, you can mark down Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. And look at what he says in Acts 20 and verse 32. Acts 20 and verse, 20, verse 32, he tells us how to avoid deception. He says, I commend you to God, that's prayer, and to the word of his grace, that's the word. By praying and by being in the word, you will spot heresy. You will see it when it's coming. And Paul gives us two things to look for. First of all, he says, we look for those who are speaking perverse things, verse 30. The word perverse means distorted, twisted, 
crooked, or corrupt. Now, it can contain an element of truth, but not be truth. It can sound on the surface like it's true, but on further examination, you begin to question, is that really what God said? Secondly, the effects of the danger is to draw away, literally, that little phrase, to draw away from, that little phrase means literally to drag from the truth. People will come in from the outside and from the inside to drag people away from the truth of the Word of God. We're in a battle, folks. And everything you've worked all your life to put into your children can be taken away by a false teacher. And everything we've worked for for all these years and for many of you for your lifetime in this church could be taken away by a wolf who slips in in sheep's clothing and tries to deceive. The wolves are there. They're outside. They're inside. They're always going to be there. We shouldn't be surprised. By the way, if you read Timothy and Revelation, you'll find that the church at Ephesus did not listen to what Paul said, and the wolves came in, and they lost their witness, and the church at Ephesus no longer exists today. It can happen to any church. If it can happen to Ephesus, where Paul ministered for three years, it can happen to Sherwood. It can happen to any of us. My friend Ken Jenkins is a nature photographer. He's taken about a million pictures He's been published in National Geographic and a lot of other places. We carry his artwork in, in our bookstore. He's a phenomenal photographer. I have a picture of a wolf that I got from him. It's framed in barnwood framing. It's about this big, and it's a wolf sitting in a field of red blooms. But what that picture doesn't show you is that wolf is sitting there, but right over here, he's about there, and right over here is a rabbit that is unaware of the presence of the wolf. And the wolf's got him spotted. And he has a picture of the wolf and he has a picture of the rabbit that's sitting there with his back turned, not knowing that the wolf is sitting right there. And you know, if you let your guard down for one minute, there's a wolf that you haven't spotted that is sitting waiting to undermine your faith, to pull you down, to catch you off guard, and destroy your testimony. They're there. By the way, one of the great stories that Ken tells is he takes every picture on a tripod and he uses this tripod and he sets up and he's got all kind of pictures of wolves. They're fascinating pictures. And he said, you know, when, you, when you're out there taking pictures of wolves, which, by the way, I wouldn't recommend. Uh, personally, just a thought. I just wouldn't recommend that. But he said, when you're out there taking a picture of a wolf and you got your tripod set up, when they come up in a pack, he said, when they see you, what they will do while you're standing there is they will run straight at you full speed. And they'll brush you right by the side of your leg. And if you budge, you're dead. He says, what you have to learn to do, he says, it's pretty frightening the first time it happens to you. He said, what you have to learn to do is to stand still when the wolves come running at you. And when they find out you don't budge, they'll leave you alone. You know why wolves get the church? Because we run when we see them coming rather than standing firm in the armor of God. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed.